Outside the box. Hello and welcome to May's Outside the Box. The dam has broken and new television is arriving. Hooray. Helping me, Wade. God, I'm trying to stick with this as a metaphor, but I haven't planned it out. Wade through the waters of exciting new television is Jen Offord. Hello. And Mickey Noonan. Getting jiggy with it. No, absolutely not. No. Thanks for being here, Jen. Goodbye. (laughs) We've got loads of stuff to get through. I thought we could start with just our final feelings on Line of Duty, since that seems to be the big television event, which is Jen and I watched that. End of series six, possibly the last one ever. There doesn't seem to be any talk of it coming back any time soon and it felt like it had a sense of wrapping it up even if that wrapping up of it wasn't necessarily particularly satisfying I've only really got one word to say to the last series of Line of Duty which is meh I listened to the boss on Craig Parkinson's podcast and her and Craig had a conversation about how witness protection works, which I enjoyed more than I enjoyed, I think, the whole of the last episode, possibly the whole of the last series. It really made me laugh. I also really enjoyed it. Did you see Kieran Hodgson's... Yes. <laughs> ...series six in two minutes? Yes, it's in brilliant. In which he, he used the most... <laughs> you're going to have to forgive my accent, but he used the expression... The Beads ecclesiastical history, which really, really made me laugh. When people joking about it is more fun than actually watching it. I yeah, Jen, say something. Um, yeah, it was. I did enjoy the series. In you know, just it was it was enjoyable enough to watch, but I don't think it was necessarily that good. And the ending was. I mean, I saw Jed Mercurio tweet about this and, like, we always knew it wouldn't necessarily be popular to talk about, like, you know, the real corruption in, in police and society and blah, blah, blah and what drives it or something like that. And I just thought, oh, fuck off, Mercurio. You've just trolled, like, the entire nation. <laughs> I don't want your worthy ending. I, that's not what I wanted. I wanted, like... I, I, it's not what I wanted, basically. I was disappointed. And also, one thing that I'm probably going to talk about again in a minute. One thing that occurred to me while I was watching it is that Steve Arnott, who, as we have discussed on this podcast before, like gets his leg over a surprising amount, to Mm. be honest. Consistently, it seems, with vulnerable women who he has, like, who he exclusively has access to through his job. I would say that's certainly not all of them, because he does also, like, have a lot of flings with his colleagues. Oh, okay. In that case, sure. Not, not to worry. Um, no, but like he's, <laughs> he, he, there's like three women who are, I think Kate says, are people of interest or whatever. But like at least two of them are quite vulnerable women as well. I think my favourite bit in the last episode was when she just went, oh, mate, when he, yeah. when he said he was <laughs> shagging John Corbett uh, or not shagging, as the case may be. I felt like it, it, it raised that whole addicted to prescription drugs and then did nothing with it. And I felt like I don't go to a line of duty, particularly for realism, but if you're going to poke around in addiction to painkillers, you could at least give it a satisfactory resolution rather than just he's gone to counselling, it will probably be okay. Yeah. 
which is not necessarily, as many of us know, what happens when people get addicted to painkillers very often. Things tend to spiral quite quickly. So I thought that was given a short shrift as a story. There is a new Jeb Curio thing coming with Martin Compton in it using his own accent. Oh. Which also stars Saran Jones and is set in a submarine. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've seen um, that. I think it's called... I think it's called Vigil or something. Yeah. I don't know. I will watch it, even yeah. though I'll probably end up going, oh, for fuck's sake, at the end of it. Well, I like Saran Jones and I like Martin Compton as well. And, and I have to say, I think he's better when he's allowed to be Scottish. So let's move on to something else that we might have funny feelings about. I thought we could talk about Viewpoint, which ITV, five part drama over five nights. Mickey watched one episode, I watched two, Jen watched four. And at that point, the plot and the acting and all of that seemed to be for nothing because the breaking of a story about misconduct on set towards women and some men, not on this set, but just in general, of its star, Noel Clark seemed to entirely swamp the story. And by that, I don't mean the story of the thing, I mean the national story. I don't know how comfortable anybody feels reviewing it, but I thought if we don't feel comfortable reviewing it, that in itself would make quite an interesting conversation. We talked about this in Bush Telegraph a couple of weeks ago because ITV obviously pulled it, which I think was... No, that's not true. It didn't pull it. It pulled the fifth episode from Terrestrial Television, put it on the ITV hub for 48 hours and then took it down. And I don't think that was necessarily... I understand ITV were in a difficult position, but I don't think it served its viewers particularly well because, as I pointed out, you know, if you've got shit Wi-Fi or if you were working all weekend or if, like some elderly relatives of mine, you don't know how to use the ITV hub, you watched four hours of television for nothing. And I don't think that's a particularly good way to treat your viewers. Did you get in there, Jen? Did you watch the fifth episode? I did, actually. I did watch it because by that point I'd committed four hours of my life to it. So I was like, I want to know how this ends. I don't know if I think that pulling it was the right move by ITV because, as Hannah says, there's a lot of people who had invested four hours of their life in it and for whatever reason wouldn't be able to watch the end of it. But also because there's literally hundreds of other people involved in the making yeah. of that who then suffer as a result of of one guy and if that isn't giving this shitbag alleged shitbag lots of power then i don't know what you know yeah. like it's yeah, agreed particularly who wrote it i think to write a story and have the last chapter ripped out of it is really unfortunate and probably incredibly frustrating from what I saw of it, I have to say, I thought it was, I mean, it was pretty standard ITV drama. I don't think it stood out particularly. There wasn't a huge amount to it. It was set in Manchester and it sort of took a rear window vibe. But by saying it took a rear window vibe, it had absolutely in no way the tension that rear window has. So I think it was maybe a bit oversold on that point. But... Jen, you watched it all. What would you like to say about it? I quite liked it. I actually thought um, I had a conversation with my mate Nicola about it after they'd announced that they were pulling it and I didn't realise that it was going to go on the hub at that point. And I was like, oh, I'm fucking livid, you know, because I 
watched however many episodes and she said um yeah it's quite good and she said an itv only make one good thing a year <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like well actually they've done three good things already this year i quite enjoyed it i thought it was quite good i wouldn't say i thought like clark was amazing in it i, I wouldn't say there were any like individual like great performances I, yeah i thought all of the performances were kind of a bit meh but i thought the story was quite interesting and I thought the way they did it was quite interesting and I sort of quite liked the idea that you could sort of see everything going on but you had to kind of figure it out yourself. Like you had to do quite a lot of detective work yourself watching it because you're seeing like little bits of little clues playing out without actually sort of hearing what they were saying because that's the whole idea is that they're a surveillance team basically and they're mm. watching the street from which this woman has gone missing. I have to say I found the the ending quite disappointing i kind of envisaged there would be a stupid twist at the end that would ruin it all and and it it basically did from from my perspective but i thought it was a an enjoyable watch i think it maybe is worth pointing out i think it was also noel clark's production company that made it i think it was unstoppable yeah it is unstoppable i guess from that perspective maybe that put them in a maybe that put itv in an even like in a trickier situation in that he's not just the star it's like sort of his as well i don't know i think it unfortunately opens up a precedent as well yes yeah because the next question is what if somebody is accused of something and it's two women not 20 women yeah Yeah. what if it's just saying outrageously sexist things i don't know It, it didn't make me feel comfortable that they pulled it because yeah, for lots of reasons which we talked about. But that said, if we just talk about it on the straight drama front, I only watched two. I felt no need to watch any more, particularly since there was a clock ticking on the available time that I would have had to watch the rest of it because, you know, I knew that the finale only had 48 hours to go up or I only have 48 hours after it had gone up to watch it. Okay, a couple of other things that have started this week that are back Two British comedies back on BBC. I think they both started on Monday night. Inside Number Nine and Motherland both returned. I don't think we're actually going to have time to talk about both of those. I've seen the first of Motherland just because I know that Mickey saw the first of Inside Number Nine. Yes, I did. I don't have a huge amount to say so far, only that there's something kind of a major plot development for one of the characters, which I think will be interesting, and I'm glad they're tackling it. I don't want to say what it is because the BBC actually specifically asked on the preview stuff that you didn't say what it was, so I'm not going to. But, yeah, I think this series of of Motherland might, as well as being funny, might have some sort of emotional resonance to it. And also, having known someone who has gone through what someone's about to go through in this, I actually think it's perfectly acceptable to make jokes about it. In fact, I think it's quite funny in a lot of ways. So, yes, Mickey, any quick first thoughts on Inside Number 9? I love it. I love them. Nothing has changed at the start of series six. Okay. One of my fears with Inside Number Nine was by doing something tremendous in the last series, by doing that just amazing crossover with Psychoville, I felt like personally it may have peaked for me. I don't want to worry about that, but it does lead me to a second programme, which I I do wonder whether or not it might have peaked, which has also started and is on on Friday night on BBC and obviously all of these things are on the iPlayer as well 
which is This Time with Alan Partridge, which, as everybody knows, contained one of the funniest things that's ever been on the telly in the last series, which sat amongst some stuff that I thought was kind of average. So I did wonder whether this may have peaked. But that said, the excitement that something that brilliant might happen again is what is going to make me watch it. So, yes... This time is the one-show style television programme presented by Alan Partridge, who's, I mean, that needs no explanation anymore, and Jenny Gresham, who is played with absolute, just amazing precision by Susanna Fielding. The familiarity of it just makes me smile. Just Partridge, just being Partridge makes me smile. It hasn't really made me seriously laugh yet. So I suppose in many ways it's not doing its job. But nonetheless, I like it. And it's full of people that I also enjoy watching on telly. So far we've had Simon (laughs) Farnaby, Loliana Fapi who plays Ruth Duggan. And there was a brilliant moment in which Alan Partridge apologises to her for mistaking her dad for an Uber driver. And she says, I don't worry, I quite enjoyed watching how uncomfortable it made you. And her horribleness to Partridge is a joy to behold. Mickey, thoughts? I mean, I'm shocked and surprised that you didn't at least do a mighty giggle when he leapt off a monastery wall, because that absolutely made me chuckle. Wearing a University of Warwick tracks. <laughs> <laughs> see? See? I think that actually is quite representative of the joy of Partridge, because we know the character so well, and we've been with him for decades now. It's so hard for Steve Coogan to reach those giddy heights because we feel like we know him. So what does he do? And there will be surprises. And like you say, there is that anticipation. But I think back to what I've seen and little moments keep reoccurring to me of Alan doing something ridiculous, like just getting really obsessed about the availability of milk while he's in Borstal. (laughs) It just (laughs) makes me laugh all over again. And so far, there have been some absolutely lovely moments. One of the things that just, just I found crazy impressive in it was that last week they had a callback to "Knowing Me, Knowing You," which is uh-huh. a really, really old callback, which in which John Thompson plays a ventriloquist comedian with a monkey puppet who went off the rails after his appearance on Know Me, Knowing You, and is now back on the rails and offering advice on on what he's learned during that time. And in the middle of it, he gives some pretty clear advice on what to do if you are the victim of domestic violence. And the fact that they they slip that in just at 9.30 on a Friday night, I managed to make it funny, but yet still pretty useful. I was actually quite impressed by And the fact that both Jenny and Alan look at the camera and go, genuinely good advice. They're playing it for the laughs, but also this is is exactly what you should do, which is is excellent. Susanna Fielding is still absolutely smashing it as Jenny Gresham. Just her, Mm. her face, just when they're doing the countdown before the filming starts again or they go live again and she just flicks on that smile. Or just sort of does a little sideways glance to Alan while still maintaining character. She's a, yeah, she's so good. And Lynn, oh, Lynn. Lynn with a plastic hip uh, is still bringing absolute moments of levity and joy. I just think it's like a hug, but a slightly Mm. uncomfortable hug because you never know what's going to go wrong with that hug. But it's just, I just really like seeing 
Partridge doing his thing on TV. So yeah, yeah. I'm having I'm having a lovely time. And he's managed to find a, a number of jokes. I mean, this is the the joy of Partridge full stop that just keep being funny no matter how many times they do them. And with this, it's the fact that he insists on bending down despite the fact his knees make the most repulsive noise every time he does it. Jen, have you watched any Partridge? Have you not had a chance yet? No. Sadly not, but it is it is uh, merrily recording every Friday on my Skybox, so I'm looking forward to. You can just involved. have like save all six and just have the best three hours. <laughs> yeah, right. So let's take a break, and then we'll be back to talk about some other stuff. We're going to be talking about Mayor of East Town, Ian Wright's Home Truths. I watched a couple of episodes of Leonardo. Holy fuck! And Mickey has been watching. Makeup, a glamorous history. Welcome back. Anybody do anything exciting in their break? <laughs> I held in a wee because we didn't actually have a break. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start with Mayor of East Town, seven part HBO drama currently showing on Sky, starring Kate Winslet. Yeah, I'm going to say a couple of things here that aren't particularly revolutionary because everybody has noticed them, but I think they bear repeating. When I started watching it, I thought, wow, this is like Happy Valley, but without the jokes, or not jokes, but without the humour, without the wry humour. And I googled it to see whether or not it was based on anything because it kind of got the feel of something that was based on a novel and it's not. So my guess is it's kind of based on Happy Valley, whether or not that's a deliberate homage or whether or not that's an unconscious homage it feels very similar and also the lead character has definite definite elements of the character played by Frances McDormand in three billboards outside Ebbing Missouri she's got kind of a tough I'm no nonsense I'm not taking that attitude I'm not saying that's a bad thing I'm just saying it feels in many ways quite derivative before we've even started. Can I just pitch in there to, one, absolutely agree with you, and two, to the point that after three episodes, I did, in fact, trot off and watch both series of Happy Valley. <laughs> just as, as, a, as a palate cleanser. Again, yeah. <laughs> it's a murder mystery set in small town Pennsylvania, starring Kate Winslet, obviously, as I've mentioned, as the titular mayor. Two genuinely brilliant character actors in it that haven't really been given a huge amount to do yet Julianne Nicholson and Jean Smart who are playing her best friend and her mother respectively the first three episodes which is what Mickey has watched you've watched the first three Jen Mm -hmm. and I I think have watched all four episode four it just appears to veer off in a totally different direction oh exciting Um, like crazy different direction not just in terms of where the plot might be going, but also suddenly, actually, I kind of warmed up a little bit to Kate Winslet's character. She actually starts to have a bit of back and forth with her mum. And Jean Smart is so brilliant that actually that kind of bickering relationship finally sort of sat and went somewhere with me and became quite funny when her mum got taken off in the ambulance she actually really obviously couldn't be bothered to go and she says do you want me to come with you and she smarts yeah and she's like oh god and I felt like that they really should have hit that target a bit sooner and I would have warmed up to it a bit sooner 
But in terms of plot, it's now spun off into something that's way bigger than perhaps we anticipated. I kind of feel like the need to reserve judgment a little bit because I don't know how it's going to end and how stuff like this ends is kind of how you judge them. I mean, it reminds me a little bit tonally sort of of sharp objects in that it feels quite slow, but also in many ways, like, they're speeding through stuff. And because it's quite a big picture, because it's quite a big canvas and it's a town, I don't feel like I know any of the characters sufficiently to actually invest that much in caring whether or not they did do it or it's going to turn out to be their husband that did it. Like I say, I feel like they're sitting on Julianne Nicholson a bit, which makes me think that her character might have something to do with the denouement of this, because otherwise I don't really know why she's there. It's directed by Craig Zobel, who is an alum of The Leftovers. So I feel in some ways it's trying to tap that vein as well. But yeah, um, unsuccessfully, I would say. Anybody else got some thoughts? I'm intrigued now what happens in episode four. And I had been umming and ahhing about whether to even go back to it. But I will three episodes in i just think kate winslet's character mare is she's just a dick unlike with Catherine kaywood who's got that you can tell she cares and she's wry and she's got that northern humor which you know her hardness belies this soft underbelly whereas kate winslet just she's just angry she feels like she's a really shit detective as well the way she goes about getting information out of people and she just seems a bit thick. What she does in episode three, I'm like, why the fuck would you think you'd get away with that if you are this like celebrated police officer? So I found it hard to invest in her as a character and she has a lot of screen time. That's not to diminish Winslet's performance. She's she's good. But yeah, I was just a bit, I feel like I've seen it all before. It felt a bit hackneyed. But like, if you tell me like episode four, it becomes a town of legal gentlemen and they're all riding unicorns and it's veered off in an exciting direction. What balances the misery of Happy Valley is that that house that she lives in just radiates warmth and love, even when they're all fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. And that is the counterpoint to the horribleness of the world outside. And even if they are all broken people in Happy Valley, they stick together. Yeah. And they they form like that quite tight unit that's got other people in it. It takes in other people that like takes in the neighbour. And I don't feel like that that, that exists in this. That house just feels unhappy. Yeah. And it, I think it needs a warm counterpoint to to the the sort of bleakness of the outside world. And again, the other thing is, it's another, and again, I am only three episodes in and you've mentioned that it changes in episode four, but it's another dead girl with no clothes on. I'm just like, really? Really? Again, like just lingering on that shot. I am kind of bored of that now. I did think it was a bit odd. I, there was a thing that happened in the in the fourth episode that I thought was a bit like... I talk about this all the time, I feel, whenever we're talking about films and stuff. Basically, there was a gratuitous tit in the fourth episode. And I just thought, why? Just like, why? Why have you done that? It just wasn't necessary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was HBO, isn't it? It's just like, it totally, you totally understood what was going on. of gratuitous tits. Without this, like, very young woman popping out a a gratuitous tit. But, yeah, no, yeah, so I, I, I get what you're saying about that. I think... I'm actually kind of intrigued by it. Um, the change in the fourth episode, I'm not sure 
I'm on board, to be honest. I think it might have done what the what True Detective did for me, where I was just a bit like, I think I'm out now. I think this has become something that feels to me unbelievable. And I know that's not. I know you don't share my that criticism of True Detective, but for me, I was just a bit like, oh, this has just gone silly. And I wonder if that's how this feels to me. But just, just to interrupt, Jen, mm. the reason I don't feel like that with True Detective is the reason that I like True Detective is I actually think it was a relatively good exploration of the male psyche. And I don't think this is a relatively good exploration of the female psyche. And therefore... It doesn't stand up for me. I really liked True Detective, but in it, like, but at, towards the end of it, I was just like, "No, this is silly now." So I, I did actually like it. I did think it was very good, the first series of it, but it just it lost me at a point, and I wonder if this is where this is sort of headed. For me, that is not as a not directly comparable. I think you're right. It is a it's a miserable household, but they've had like a miserable series of events happen to them. So I don't. I didn't feel like it was too miserable for me. I thought the bleakness was probably like. You know, have you seen Happy Valley? I have, yeah, I've seen oh, okay. both series of it because yeah. obviously a lot of misery has happened to them as well. Very, yeah. very similar misery, misery, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know, but I didn't feel that it was the the bleakness of it didn't. And and Happy Valley's really bleak as well, but I see, but like it has obviously, as you say, that warmth and whatever. I totally agree that she's shit at her job um, <laughs> and that so she's shit. not very nice. But I totally, but I also understand why she's not nice, and I do think they brought in bit more not nice that's the wrong way of putting it angry yeah but um they do bring in a bit more of that in the fourth episode as well as as to like why to kind of scratch the surface they do it via flashback which i feel is somewhat lazy Uh, another point that i was a little bit critical of it but something else now has shaken out a bit in the fourth episode which makes it way more interesting from that point of view is how little chemistry her and Guy Pearce have and given that Guy Pearce came in as a replacement for someone who dropped out at the last minute at the request of Kate Winslet because they'd worked together before I was like I don't know why they have such poor chemistry but given something that's now developing another plot that's developing Mm. in, in episode four I wonder whether maybe that might have actually been intentional rather than them not having a lot of chemistry in general so that's quite interesting as well. Yeah. Guy Pearce, um, you, know, you know in Prometheus he plays like the, the guy that invented um, Michael Fassbender. Or what does he invent? He the invents guy that something. invented Michael Fassbender? No, what does... He's the I want to meet him. Who's like Michael Fassbender. Have you seen Prometheus? I haven't. Is, is it Ridley Scott? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's like it's the prequel. prequel to Alien. Yeah. So he plays like the guy who's basically responsible for taking them to this weird planet. But they um, made him look like um, this really like a billion year old man in it. This like really, really old guy. But I found it really distracting because I was like, Guy Pierce looks like he does in Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> he's 12,000 years old now. What's yeah. happened? Oh, he's, he's still handsome though. He's oh, no, he is. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. Di- he's no, distinguished he looking. He definitely is, yeah. Okay, so that's our thoughts on Mayor of East Town. I might just mention quickly, I watched Leonardo. It's an Amazon series made by a French production company and an Italian production company. It's about Leonardo da Vinci. And when you think Leonardo da Vinci, you know, like polymath, one of the finest minds that have ever existed in history. I mean, you certainly think who's going to play that? Aidan Turner, don't you? 
That's your first thought. <laughs> let's let's get that guy from Poldark to play him. No offence to Aidan Turner. We saw him in The Lieutenant of Inish Moore. Yeah, and he was great. Yeah, but he's cracking. That's what he's... That's what he's good at, playing a polymath that doesn't require taking his top off much. Isn't what he's good at playing, particularly. It's very Mills and Bonish. Very, very Mills and Bonish. It completely skirts over the idea that Leonardo da Vinci was in all likelihood gay. It does It does mention that he's gay at the top, but only that he kind of has inclinations uh, rather than he actually has a boyfriend and he has a character in it who would like have been his boyfriend but he's not he's called like his like pal yes exactly is he, that is he called and goose then it, <laughs> and then it sets it sets him up i watched two of them it was hilarious it sets him up in this kind of non-sexual love affair with a woman because obviously it has to stick with this idea that, you know, Aidan Turner is a heartthrob and that women want to see him involved in relationships. But it sets him up in, in this oddly sexless love affair with a woman. It's just, it's really, really, really bad. And then in the middle of it, sorry, it has like a murder mystery that he like has been accused of murdering someone and he's in prison. And I just don't understand if you want to make a drama about a man an artist make a drama about that. If you want to make a drama about an artist that murdered someone, make it about Caravaggio. Like he actually did that shit. I don't really understand why they did. They tried to mush the two together. Anyway, if you want to watch it, it is hilarious, not in a good way. And it is on Amazon. It has got a second series, so it's obviously appealing to someone. I'm curious to know if that's you, anyone. Does he Please not, let me know. Does he not take his top off? He does take his top off oh, to right. do painting sometimes. Okay. But, yeah. I was going to say I'm out unless he takes his top off. I'm in. <laughs> oh. I mean, I've never seen Paul Duck, so I don't have the kind of affection for him that most people seem to. I mean, uh, to say. Paul Duck's fucking awful, but he's he's not bad to look at, is he? <laughs> and, and, you know, Hannah, you, th- you think Leonardo da Vinci polymath. I think Leonardo da Vinci, Turtle. who was or wasn't he boffin, and did he ever kill anyone? That's what I yeah. want to know. Exactly that, exactly that. I mean, there is a page that demonstrates all the historical inaccuracies in it that you can, uh, I believe, actually, it's Wikipedia page. But Just I one mean, page? Su- it sounds like it needs a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, that's just like the, the sort of technical stuff that's wrong. The whole basic premises of it is if it's wrong. They might as well just put at the top. <laughs> wrong. The woman is made up. The murder never happened. Everything else is just shit. <laughs> but maybe they didn't want to put that. I tell you what, it started off with the words about how Leonardo's greatest, greatest achievement was like lost to time. And then it said, until now, dot, dot, dot. And I thought, oh, I'll rub my hands together. This is going to be <laughs> bullshit. And it was. Was his greatest achievement his physique? And maybe that's why it was lost to time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mickey, tell me about makeup. So, makeup, a glamorous history. Professional makeup artist Lisa Eldridge fronts this excellent three-part documentary on the BBC Two, slash I watched it on the iPlayer. So I have to put my hands up. I already loved her. I like her YouTube tutorials. She's an incredibly warm character and makes what she does, which is art on a face, 
look easy and accessible. But this made me full on swoon. She goes full Lucy Worsley in her facts. Fascinating facts, subtly feminist facts, approach to Georgian, Victorian and early 20th century makeup. Then if she's uh, flicking her hair, Nigella Lawson style in the kitchen, while she whips up cosmetic recipes from each era. The documentary also takes this aspect of it to a laboratory because some ingredients of each era are a big no-no now. Lead and indeed liquid wax from a sperm whale's head. I am looking at you. Uh, what about magnets on your eyes? Yeah, they, they didn't use those. They didn't have the false eyelashes. Uh, they burned cloves to make an eyebrow pencil, which she was really pleased with. I think she might just start using it. Uh, <laughs> they very much don't use the sperm whale stuff, by the way. So in the documentary, Eldridge says that makeup tells us as much about historical era as art, architecture and food. And I think she's right. And I think this documentary shows that she's right because it shines a light on race. It shines a light on the hurtling pace of industrialization and what that did to the industry of makeup. And it shines a very bright light on sex because, of course, makeup was mostly used to put women in their place. Oh, has it changed? No, maybe not. But be that the paler the face and the bigger the hair, the higher the status of Georgian women. The makeup is a sin, but you best look naturally pretty or you won't bag yourself a husband of the Victorian era, which led to some incredible subterfuge when it came to making your face look glowy and matte also the freedom granted by makeup and short hair in the 1920s and 30s albeit interestingly that is when the negging method of selling products to women began in earnest and we know that still is happening today women you look shit with wrinkles there's something to get rid of it that kind of thing Basically, this is cracking and it's really sort of stealth feminism and sometimes just avert feminism. And I really loved it and I learned a lot and not just about hair and makeup. Big recommend. To go full Lucy Worsley, she would also have to dress up a lot in it. Does she dress up in this? She has a model. So Lisa is very much, she wears her own clothes, but she has a model called Queenie who is really young and sweet and kind of that blank canvas that she puts these looks on. And there's a little bit, and Queenie does not say very much at all. She must be like 19 max. But at one point, Lisa goes to her, what do you think about that style? Would you wear it? And she went, oh, I wouldn't think so. I'd look like a potato. And she just sort of (laughs) steals the show. It's amazing. So no, Lisa isn't dressing up herself, but she does go and make the stuff and then she uses that. So I suppose she does do her face with the products that she reconstructs. Does she talk at all about what's what's crackalacking today in makeup because i'd be fascinated to know how that stands against the past because as discussed on this podcast before people look mental today Um, (laughs) she mentions the sharpie brow at one point uh, but she talks about how those eras makeup reflected the era so there's hints that it's cynical and cyclical so there's a really interesting bit where she talks about and it's fucking horrific that in Victorian times, tuberculosis was seen. If a woman had tuberculosis, that's when she was at her most beautiful, the start of consumption, because you would get that feverish brow, so you'd be a bit flushed, glowy because of the sweat. You'd lose weight, so your bone structure would pop out. And she she compares it to like the heroin chic mm. of Kate Moss's heyday. So there are comparisons, but she doesn't go into today's makeup specifically. I think I think it's fascinating. I'd be very interested in, you know, 50 years time or whatever when someone talks about the history of contouring, for example. 
Yeah, I mean, looking back on it, what people were doing, it is very much like, that's mad. Why were they doing that? Why were they using lead on their face? But yeah, you're right. People look back on today and think the same. I'd be very interested to know what anybody looking back on 50 years just makes of us full stop, to be honest, in 50 (laughs) years' time. I mean, I think what we were putting on our faces might be the least of it. I know you're kind of joking there, but I actually think the fact that this documentary shows that what people were putting on their faces, specifically women, does actually tell us loads about the history of that time. Yeah. Yeah. It tells you a lot about about women in any period of time, Mm. doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Right. Let's end on another documentary that Jen and I have watched, which is Ian Wright's Home Truths, which is a one part. I think it was on this week. I watched it on the preview service, but I think it was on this week. Even so, by the time this comes out, you'll be able to watch it on the iPlayer in which Ian Wright takes a timely look at the effect of domestic violence on children growing up in those households. There's some quite shocking statistics in it. I mean, there's some quite shocking statistics floating around anyway, particularly now about lockdown, in which matters have got a lot worse. And although we tend to focus on the women involved, that doesn't mean that we don't care about the children. But it does mean, actually, that they don't tend to get talked about enough. So I think it's really good that that's what he was talking it's about. It's only recently they've been covered under the law as well, isn't yeah. it, children? Mm. Yeah, he brings yeah. that up. He obviously is talking from personal experience, which is important in this. So first thing to say is, well done, Ian Ripe. He talks very openly about what happened to him and the effect that it had on him. And I think most crucially, how he didn't realise that the two things were connected for such a long time that he talks a lot in it about how angry he was and they do a lovely mashup of shots of him just being a knob whilst playing football and being really angry and him saying, you know, it, it took me a long time to realise where all that anger came from. It has a couple of reconstructions in it, which I could, to be honest, I could do without. I don't need a reconstruction to tell me I should feel sorry for children, but maybe some people do. Or not to feel sorry for them, but to actually put them in that situation. And maybe some people do. So I'm not going to knock them for putting them in there. I mean, he is a very emotional character, Ian Wright. And this Mm. explains why he's such an emotional character. But actually, it's what it needs, is a man who's unafraid to be emotional. He doesn't just talk about the domestic violence that his stepfather inflicted on his mum, but also about the emotional violence that his mum inflicted on him as a result of it. And therefore, it kind of takes in both threads. I mean, the general conclusion he draws at the end is that the emotional violence was harder on him. That's not to say that he diminishes domestic violence. And it's also worth mentioning we're talking about his stepdad and his mum and therefore what his mum said to him probably has has an extraordinary amount of power. He does a couple of things in it. I think that some people might be a little bit put off by. He goes and talks to actual domestic abusers who are going through a programme to attempt to learn from their mistakes. And he has quite a lot of sympathy for them, I think because he's aware that he carried a lot of anger with him in his life and that a lot of them were the victims of domestic violence themselves. So it's like a cycle repeating itself. And I think some people might not like that. But to be honest, I'm of the opinion that what we're going to do with these people 
We've got to try and fix them. And if we can't fix them, at the very least, we have to try to understand them to stop other people getting involved in that. So I would say, all round, big win. Well done, Ian Wright. Jen? I'm a big fan of particularly male athletes making documentaries. I know that I know we're about women, but I just think that um, the the amount of reach that they have mm-hmm. in terms of getting men to think about issues that they're not, you know, traditionally encouraged to think about with regards to themselves and their emotions, etc., etc., I think is obviously phenomenal. And someone like Ian Wright, who is you know, just an absolute legend in terms of, of football. I think that that will be a really, really powerful thing for lots of men. It had quite a similar kind of set up in some ways to a documentary which aired, I think, last year, Freddie Flintoff talking about about bulimia that that he's had for, for a period of time and that he went to a psychologist who sort of talks to him about what he's experienced and kind of gets him to understand that there sort of is a problem really like gets him to understand that he has been a victim of something obviously Mm. different subject but with the freddie flintoff documentary um she sort of gets him to realize that actually like it's not a situation that he's controlling very well and and there's something deeper going on which i think is like quite a powerful thing as well for for men to see with the point about talking to the abusers i think that I think, as I've said on the podcast before, the legal, the, like the whole like premise of our society, basically, like the legal system is that people are not beyond redemption. Mm. So I think if these are people who are actively trying to, you know, better themselves, and that's that's a good thing. And also, I do think it's really important to make the point that a lot of abusers have been victims of abuse and about that cycle of abuse. Um, I think it is important to to make that point. That was a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree, uh, all in all, big win. Well done, Ian Wright. I don't think it was long-winded. Yeah. I think you made some really good points, particularly... And it's it's men being given permission to feel something, almost. And mm. while it's outrageous that we're in this situation, that's what society and social conditioning has left us with. So, yeah, that, that seeing someone that they have respect for, albeit from what they did on a football pitch, but seeing them open up... I think is incredibly powerful and agreeing with both of you about talking to the abusers being really, really important. And it's the same with child abuse. People don't want to talk to the abusers because they're monsters. And this monstering does nothing to help understand why it happens and therefore help us move on as a society and try and put some prevention in place. So, yeah, I, I was planning to watch it anyway, but you two have definitely made me think I need to do it sooner rather than later. And also, yeah, I mean, I don't think we're the audience for it. No. Particularly, we know the facts. But if the audience it reaches and is aimed for is men, that to me is all for the good. Absolutely. Because, I, like I say, we don't need to know that stuff. And you, you're right, Jen, because there's a particular, there is, he constantly, at one point somebody says to him, he was a victim. And he goes, a victim? I've never thought of myself as a victim. And I think there's something in that in the word victim, that that that's all-encompassing, that people think that that means that you are a victim, you are someone who is regularly, like, victimised and you don't want to see yourself as that, rather than someone who is a victim of a specific event, which is what he definitely was. Like, the connotation is there's a weakness there, isn't there? And I I don't think people would see Ian Wright in that way, and it's exactly what you said, Mickey, like, the the psychologist he speaks to and and the other people he speaks to give him permission 
to feel the way he feels about his past. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a really powerful thing for other men to see. And I think, like, do you know, I think the BBC actually have made, like, quite a lot of really good documentaries tapping into that kind of male mental health thing over the last couple of years. So obviously we talked about the Roman Kemp documentary before, but before that they did one where they got, um, I think it was Prince William and uh, some various, like, footballers, quite famous ones, like Thierry Henry, for example, to come and talk about... I know, I mean, he didn't really say very much, but he looked ever so nice. Um, He said stuff, but weirdly I couldn't hear it. All I could hear was his eyes saying, All I could hear was my beating heart. Um, (laughs) Hannah. Slippery bits. Yeah, so, but yeah, but where they've gone and they've talked to people about, like, mental health issues that they've had and stuff like that and i think the bbc have done a, a really like stepped up their game on that and, and made quite a few documentaries that i think yeah were not necessarily aimed at me but they're not supposed to be and that's the point and you know if it's something we can get men to watch and appreciate then that yeah as you said hannah that's that's all for the good also on an ian wright thing uh he it did the rounds loads at the time but he recorded an episode of desert island discs i think it was last year or maybe maybe the year before but i listened to it while i was heavily pregnant what a time to listen to it and it's just delightful and what you say about him and his emotions and whatever like really 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 comes through so if you are a fan of ian wright or just you know hearing delightful men get a bit emotional yeah. and <laughs> every year it. my fella gary goes on something called the distinguished gentleman's bike ride which is a big bike ride through london like motorbike raising money for charities that help men and ian wright is always there and he's always apparently really friendly and makes an effort with people and just you know he seems like a good a good man to be honest from from not not from exactly the same perspective but yeah i mean as someone who has has laid out the flaws of their childhood in public it is a really really fucking hard thing to do and you do deal with a lot of guilt and ian wright's mum is still alive which makes what he's done even harder because there there will be sort of repercussions within that relationship regardless of whether she said that she was quite happy for him to make it it's very difficult to put the information out and say you know that perfect scenario that that everybody thinks that everybody else has been raised in well that's not what it looked like for me and it's not guilt i mean it's so complicated it is so fucking complicated what you feel when you do stuff like that that yeah i mean just well done to him for doing it i think it's really key though what you just said it's just that all of this trauma that comes from abuse Abuse doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's never just what one person does to another person. It affect, it's got this huge ripple effect, and that needs talking about as well. So I think what you said there is really key. Until next time, when we will be talking, we know for a fact we will be talking about Inside Number Nine and Motherland. We might also be talking about The Handmaid's Tale, because that's on in America, so it might well reach here by this point and still i'm gonna say it again fargo currently on tv in america why can't we watch it why can't we watch it why haven't we got it what are you waiting for channel four you've got nothing else to put on for fuck's sake there's literally no other tv but anyway they will be coming soon uh, i went and had a little check what the latest on succession was as well and succession is fourth quarter is what they've said so october onwards Yes. 
Yes. Exciting. <laughs> Exciting. But Brian Cox's autobiography is out before then, yes. so you can kind of get in the mood. Okay. Bye. A wave. That's great for a podcast. <laughs> Outside the box.